Welcome to Pip Podcast number 26. In this podcast, Robin has a kitchen table conversation with chef, TV presenter, writer and grower Paul West of River Cottage, Australia. Pull up a chair and enjoy as they talk all things food, family, culture and community. In the podcast, Paul shares his journey from dishwasher to TV chef to his most recent work, writing about urban growing in his new book, The Edible Garden Cookbook and Growing Guide. Fill your cup and get inspired with Paul's contagious enthusiasm for food and community. We hope you enjoy. So today we are talking with Paul West from River Cottage, Australia, and also recently Gardening Australia and Catalyst and a few other things. And Paul has also recently brought out a book, The Edible Garden Cookbook and Growing Guide. So thanks for chatting with me today, Paul. Thanks, Robin. It's a pleasure to, to have you here in my kitchen, sitting at the table having a chat. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good you're living in Burmy, nice and close. Yeah, we, we've been back uh, for about two months now. So yeah. We spent the last, after River Cottage came to an end, we, we moved away for two years uh, via Newcastle, uh, Melbourne via Newcastle, uh, and then I was writing the book in Melbourne, and then as soon as that was wrapped up, we were... You know, looking oh, for fast uh, yeah, exactly <laughs> as quickly as we could to get back here, uh, and even though we were living in a wonderful pocket of Melbourne, you know, like a kind of eastern pocket of Thornbury, right down mm. in the Merry Creek, just north Beautiful. of Ceres, there. Yeah, you know, so we were like Ceres, we were there all the time, and we always had riding bikes along the creek. Uh, and without that, I would have totally gone insane. Digger, even more so, would have gone insane. Yeah. But um, even with that, it just—it's not the same as living mm. in a beautiful rural community. So mm. we were—we were so glad to be able to get back here to Birmingham. Yeah, and I mean Melbourne has got so many great pockets like that. Yeah, you know, like I've used—I lived in Melbourne and always lived on the Yarra somewhere. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Abbotsford, or you know, where you get that little taste of it. Yes. But, uh, yeah, but yeah. you know, I think when the, it was the middle of summer and it was we we're on the Merry Creek and my kids are kind of going down near the water and yeah. they go, "Don't go in there, kids! Don't, Don't go in there! It. Don't touch the water!" <laughs> uh, you know, that's when I realised that it was just a taste. Yeah, you know, it wasn't even yeah. though it was beautiful and it was you know there was lots of kind of habitat and there was lots of beautiful bird species in there. Mm. You, you still you couldn't engage with it in the same mm. way that you can you know mm. say the ocean here in the yeah. Southern Pacific. You know, it's a uh, so yeah, especially with our kids, you know, we wanted um, we wanted them to have that kind of free range country kid upbringing that I definitely enjoyed as a kid, and, and my wife Alicia got to sample through her country cousins, yeah. uh, and we just could see that that wasn't going to eventuate in Thornbury, even though it's a really great progressive community. Lots mm. of everyone. we had so many amazing neighbours, so much interesting things happening around growing food and and community and multiculturalism. But, you know, we couldn't just let them kind of play alone out the front of the house. Yeah. You know, just little yeah. things like that. Or yeah. we, or duck away around a corner 100 metres away. You know, it's, uh, they're going to yeah. stop way to the corner for us. You yeah. know, because then you just never know. Yeah. Uh, and we, <laughs> my oldest, because uh, he spent the first two years of his life here on the south coast, so he's pretty... He's a pretty chatty young fella. Yeah. And, uh, he, you know, he'd get on trams and be like... G'day, mate, <laughs> to people. <laughs> and, you know, and sometimes they'd, they'd just be like, you know, kind of shocked. And, yeah, you. exactly. Oh, this small child is talking to me. I don't know how to react. I'm just <laughs> going to leave my headphones on and look out the window. And, yeah. uh, and I, didn't want, I didn't want him to get to the point where he'd stop doing that. Yeah. You know, because he just yeah. realised that, oh, people aren't, you know, if I say hello to people, well, I get nothing back. So I'm just yeah. going to stop. <laughs> yeah, that it's a weird thing for people to be doing. So, um, going to Melbourne from living up here. So, yeah, so well, let's go back to the Okay, little bit. yeah, okay, I like back it. To the start. Yes, here we go, back to the dawn of time. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, so now you're out there a lot talking about growing food and cooking and eating from scratch and eating food made from scratch and um, that food sovereignty idea of where your food's coming from. But you didn't always sort of live like that, no. did you? So no. you're sort of up, that's been a gradual progression. How did that kind of come about? Yeah, so I mean, we, I grew up in rural New South Wales um, in a little town called Murrurundi, and uh, our, the population was about 900 people. So I, I definitely 
I've always had that community sense from growing up in a town like that. Uh, but in terms of food production, I mean, we, my mum was, is an amazing gardener, but um, the country we were on was so poor. We were kind of on like a clay and conglomerate rock paddock that she managed to, over about 20, 30 years, wrangle into a kind of beautiful native slash ornamental garden. Mm. But in terms of food cropping, it just, it was, we had one orange tree, you know, that was the yeah. only food thing that we ever grew. And for the first 10 years of its life, it did nothing. Uh, and then, you know, because it survived that and obviously got some roots down into some goodness somewhere from then on, it just put this amazing kind of crop of sweet oranges out every year. But that was about my extent uh, of, of food production or exposure to it. Uh, and, you know, mum and dad were small business owners um, and dad would also work in the coal mines. So they were just, they were, work, they were a working family. You yeah. know? Mum and dad both work and managing a small business that was open six days a week. Dad was doing shift work in the mines. So, mm. so there's no, you know, there's no, they didn't really have time for, for food gardening, uh, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, but that said, we, like, we still ate home-cooked meals every night, you know, yeah. to my mother's um, hard work and credit. You know, she'd kind of get back from the, the shop at 5.30 and dinner would be on the table at 6, you know, yeah. and what a powerhouse. Yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, growing up in a rural, small rural community, there wasn't really much choice beyond that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's not like we could just get, like, Uber Eats or Thai takeaway or something no, like that no. delivered in Myrunda. Uh, and so, I, you know, I'd never really been exposed to, to that kind of food production. The only, I guess the closest I came was an old Italian lady that used to live in Maranda. And she had in that kind of classic, you know, first wave migration uh, Italian, you know, community was a whole yard was fruit and vegetables. Mm. There was fruit trees everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, the whole front yard was vegetables. The whole backyard was vegetables. And she'd sell them out of a little kind of honesty box. Right. And, uh, but it was, it was such a, I guess, a novelty because no one else did that. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. like, it's kind of like, oh, look at crazy old Mrs. Angel. She's yeah. got food all in her yard, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> Where's your lawn, you Mrs. Angel? <laughs> Shouldn't you be mowing instead of weeding or seeding? <laughs> uh, and so that was, that was about the extent of it. Uh, and then so I, um, I left home uh, as, um, you know, at 18, just shy of my 18th birthday and moved down to Newcastle. And, uh, you know, just kind of fumbled through a whole bunch of odd jobs and realised that I was probably a little bit lacking in, in worldliness having grown up in such a small community and such a, you know, kind of nuclear family on the outskirts of town. Mm. And so I started hitchhiking around Australia as a way of kind of throwing myself in the deep end of a little bit more exposure uh, to the world at large, and um, that that led me to to Woofing in northern yeah. Tasmania, uh, in a locality called Paradise, and that's that's where I really got the yeah. So, so you can check it. You can, it's it's in the it's in the phone book. Uh, yeah. Paradise, Tasmania. You can you can send a postcard. You can get a postcard uh, at the foothills of Mount Roland there. And I, I just, I mean, you know, Woofing's such an amazing mm. organisation. So I'm for saying. people who don't know what Woofing is? It's, um, it's an international volunteer organisation. It's an acronym that stands for Willing Workers on Organic Farms. And it's founded on the basic premise of a, a, a labour exchange uh, for food and accommodation. So as a woofer, you provide four to six hours accommodation, uh, sorry, four to six hours work in exchange for, for food and accommodation mm. on a daily basis. And um, I... I just lucked out the first time uh, I got, or I got so lucky, I should say, that um, I just, you know, kind of got the guidebook and joined up and, yeah. and, and thumbed through and found someone that I liked the, the sound of and I just couldn't have landed on a better property mm. as a first woofing experience. It set a very, very, very high benchmark. It was this um, lovely French gentleman uh, by the name of Gilles, Gilles Carabin, and he... Uh, he grew up in uh, in near Lyon, uh, in in France, in a in a kind of rural village on the outskirts of Lyon, and that's a for those of you who who know France uh, or Lyon's a very powerful food culture city, uh, mm. and it's driven by that that kind of village small scale agricultural mm. all ar all around it, uh, and so when he emigrated to Australia uh, in his twenties as a as a carpenter and house builder. Uh, he kind of travelled around for a bit and he was looking for somewhere to, to kind of recreate the, the farm of his childhood, you mm. know, the kind of village uh, property that he was so accustomed to seeing. Yeah. And had that fantastic, you know, kind of old European agrarian sense where they really know how to, to, to manage multiple species within a system and understand the importance of agroforestry and, mm. and you know, and a boar chemical use and, but, and also know how to get... 
food, you yeah. know, how to get how to get food that'll produce in really lean times, how to look after yeah. things that'll produce really abundantly, the you know, and that's that's as such so actually an actually live off it, right? Yeah, that's right. It a bit of a exactly. Hobby. And it's such, that's such an unbroken knowledge tradition mm. that, that goes back, you know, to the kind of dawn of the agricultural era. That mm. knowledge represents an unbroken chain from mm. from, you know, when we first started domesticating plant and animal species. And unfortunately, uh, in Australia, that's that's something that's quite rare that I found because mm. we have that, you know, we had that settler agriculture where it was soldiers and, and fortune hunters and, and ex-convicts mm. that were granted agricultural leases and they they had no agrarian experience. Mm. Uh, and so that's why we, we've kind of been left with this incredible ecological disaster mm. uh, in, across the Australian farmlands. Because and trampling over all of the... Traditional exactly. foods that were growing. Yeah, they were yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. The sheep, you know, the yeah. sheep would have ate, you know, very the well on the Murnongs of uh, yeah, and yeah. the kangaroo grass of Australia. Yeah. You know, now there's so little of that that left. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and to, to kind of backtrack just for a little bit, I I, I stayed with this guy, and um, I I just it was it was mind blowing. Mm. You know, it was one of those like real pivotal uh, formative experiences in mm. your life. Because I'd just never experienced anything like it, you know. It was uh, it was kind of the end of summer, uh, early autumn, and um, so there was lots of food around. You know, the pine he had this beautiful pine fruit orchard. It was full, and we just we lived this beautifully just simple life where we'd kind of wake up at five a.m. and have a little bit of a coffee and a feed in the kitchen, and then we'd go and do chores. You know, mm. the kind of animal chores first. And then there'd be a big project that we'd work on through the day. And I was just so incensed by it that I would work with him from sunup to sundown. Mm. And anyone who's like worked in a manual job with an old European person will know that they like, they work, <laughs> they work from sunup yeah. to sundown. And there's kind of like a 15 minute break for a little bit of lunch and another coffee and mm. then bang, straight back into it. But I was 21. And so I was definitely physically capable of doing Ooh. the work. And my body was just responding to it, mm. you know, in a way that I'd never experienced before. You know, it's it's kind of what we're designed to do. Mm. Uh, Physical labour. Exactly. But, that, but, but not like, not, you know, out there, like not a brickies labourer or, you know, or like a caber tosser, but just that <laughs> all day, easy, yeah. subtle movement. Like yeah. you, you kind of just break a sweat. But yeah. at the end of the day, it you feels really like feel you've it. gone ten rounds with yeah. a you know a heavyweight, yeah. you know. So you, and then at nine o'clock when you hit the bed, you're boom, you're out. Yeah, There's none of this exactly. kind of like brain fizzing, yeah. staring at Sitting the room. Sitting at a computer. Or yeah, whatever. no, none of that. And then you wake up at five a.m. Uh, especially again. as a twenty-one year old, I was like, oh, let's go!" <laughs> like you know, kind of yeah. jumping, literally oh, yeah, jumping out of my skin. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, he and so he. He um, he really enjoyed me being there as well because I was so enthusiastic to yeah, work and, and you know and kind of physically capable and uh, and I just the, the the idea of just you know kind of using your toil and your labour and your efforts to produce something that you saw a direct return from mm. and then he, so this this place was like it was just so abundant with life mm. you know especially that late summer kind of period. Uh, and so, you know, when in the morning there'd be insects all through the air mm. and there's all kinds of birds and small fauna and you know, there's food everywhere, there's there's domesticated livestock animals everywhere, you know, and we, we just ate outside at a beautiful old wooden table, all our meals, and, and, you know, there was a constant stream of neighbours coming in to swap and exchange. Mm. And, you know, at that age, uh, I had no trade, no degree, uh, and not a single qualification to my name beyond finishing year 12. And I, I saw the life that he, he was living and I thought, well, this, this is it, right? This mm. is what loftier aspiration yeah. could you have for a life than this? I mean, he's, he wasn't wealthy, but he was, he was rich in experience and life and, and connection and health. Mm. Uh, and I thought, well, this, this, guy's, this guy's got and it. eating better food than yeah. get it Exactly. Oh, exactly. You know, that's a, and, you know, so true because having grown up in a small rural community, again, in Australia... You know, the sad irony is that most people don't grow their own food and they're dependent on the supermarket system. Mm. And if you live in rural, getting, regional Australia, it's so bad, you know. It's getting shipped from Sydney yeah. or Melbourne. Yep. It might be grown two districts over, but then it kind of goes yeah. to the processing and then to Sydney and then to back where they exactly. kind of they find the good stuff and they send that to the Woolara or Woolworths and then yeah. they find the lower grade stuff and they send it out to the regions. Yeah. And so, you, you know, and I find that puts people at such a handicap as well because then if you become interested in eating healthily and, and 
cooking your own food. That's mm. the that's the foundation that you've got to start with. Mm. If you're dependent on the supermarkets, mm. and you look at and you, I mean, there's I love the old saying, you can't polish a turd, and it's so <laughs> it's so true in cooking yeah. though. You know, if, yeah. if you've got that kind of semi dead wilted, wilted stuff yeah. exactly yeah. as your as your starting point, then there's no way you're going to make a mm. delicious vegetable dish out of it. No wonder most people in Australia are kind of like vegetable anti arc. Oh God, veggies! Yeah. Just give me the steak and chips. Never and, actually seen what it should yeah, look like. Exactly. It's and like it asparagus. It. Yeah. Like that, my asparagus is growing at the moment. I never get around to cooking it, you know. Yes. It's just so good to eat raw. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. if you look at what's in the supermarket, it's this soggy, yeah. saggy old thing. And then you cook it up and it's even more soggy. Yeah. Well and it's the so, it's the product, you know, of, of kind of that ten thousand years of domestication of all our foods is that they're not Increasingly, they're just grown for market, not for mm. human consumption. And I mean, now we're really at the kind of the exponential explosion of that, uh, where there's no direct relationship between grower and consumer. So the grower doesn't have to stand there and go, "Oh, my asparagus tastes good." Yeah. You know, the supermarket just says it's fresh. Yeah, and uh, it has to look right. Yeah, exactly. And so we've lost, you know, the flavour uh, from our from our foodstuffs. And and of course, flavour isn't just like a, a gourmand epicurean thing. It's actually our, our tongue and our nervous system and our minds telling us that there's nutrition present. Mm. So no flavour, no nutrition. Like it's mm. basically just water fat yeah. uh, and, and devoid of any sort of decent substance. So we're operating in a handicap. Even yeah. if you even if you want to eat food healthfully, unless you're finding people who grow it you know, to a very high standard or engaging and growing it yourself. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to, to get that, that mm. full spectrum of nutrition that the human mm. body requires. Mm. That was one question. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you got here? Robert? Oh, well, we could talk all day, I'm sure. Um, yeah. I mean, we could go up on that path, but yeah, basically you, um, so that was your light bulb. Moment. That, exactly. Yeah. And from that, you then got into cooking. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, um, I was living back in Newcastle uh, at the end of that kind of year-long hitchhiking journey and um, just washing dishes to make ends meet. Uh, and my friend was a head chef and I was working for him. And uh, I could kind of see that I didn't, like, that was one part that I was lacking. Yeah. That, that I'd, I'd, with my year woofing and my kind of, you know, forced labour from mum in her garden, I felt like I had a pretty decent handle on growing stuff. I mean, obviously, as a 21-year-old, you think you've got a good handle on anything. But the older you get, you realise you don't have a handle on anything at all. Um, but at the time, I really saw that the cooking was where the real deficit in my skill set was. Mm. And having had that experience with Gilles, I um, realised that, that cooking is a real essential component mm-hmm. of that, that, mm. that it's all good to be growing the stuff and they're like as you said with your asparagus there's so much that you can eat kind of fresh out but but there's that real joy and the kind of the real peak experience of that whole thing is sitting down at the table and kind of lovingly preparing food for Mm. for the people who matter to you that you have grown that's the the kind of peak experience of it and i couldn't cook to save myself so um i asked my my kind of friend uh to put me on as an apprentice chef which, of course, he jumped at because he was paying me more to work 20 hours a week as a dishy than he would have been to be doing 50 hours yeah. a week as a first-year you know, as a first year apprentice. So he's like, great, I can have you for two and a half times the, the kind of hours and less money. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I kind of started off at just this dodgy tax write-off uh, in Newcastle, uh, but it quickly fell over the business, uh, as was kind of expected. And... Um, and then I thought, well, if I'm going to do the trade, I want to do it to a high standard. So, mm. you know, because I want to come out as a, as a kind of cook who can generally say that they're a good cook. Yeah. And so um, Newcastle, there wasn't much in fine dining at the time, and, uh, which is the opposite now. It's exploded. Um, so I wanted to move down to Melbourne because I'd been there before uh, in that hitchhiking experience. Sydney was just a bit of a bridge too far in terms of metropolis yeah. for me. I just knew that Melbourne was that, was that little bit, you know, more on the country town side of a city yeah. than the kind of booming yeah. metropolis that Sydney was. A bit more manageable. Yeah. A bit more livable. Yeah, and I, I love the, the distribution of Melbourne's a little bit more equitable. Mm. You know, you can it's, there's a lot more pockets that you can live close yeah. to the city in yeah. rather than Sydney to live close to the city. That, you know, you can kind of only be here, here or there. Yeah. Uh, and so anyway, I sent off a, a, an email to to what was the best restaurant in Australia at the time, Voodamon, and um, 
asked if they'd be willing to accept me for a job trial, even though I was only at that stage still a first year apprentice. And they um, they got back straight away saying, yeah, of course, come down. When, 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 do, you want to, when do you want to come in for your trial? Next week, mm-hmm. tomorrow? Uh, and I was kind of like, oh, oh, oh my God, I've got a shot at this. Uh, but what I didn't realise is that uh, those type of establishments are always looking for fresh flesh for the <laughs> fire. Meat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's such a, it's such a taxing job. Yeah. Uh, and it's definitely not for everyone, even though a lot of people think they would like to do it. The, it's, you quickly realise mm. that there is zero glamour yeah. to working in a, in a very, very top-end restaurant like that. All the glamour happens out in the restaurant. The yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, in are. the kitchen, it's, it's, it's like a war zone. Okay. You know? yeah. well, not that I've ever experienced a war zone, but I, I remember one of the chefs there, his brother was in the SAS, and they said that they used to compare notes. You know, whenever they were at home for a family catch-up. And they said that it was pretty similar work conditions, except yeah. the, the SAS brother got paid a hell of a lot more and yeah. had to kill people. Yeah. <laughs> but other than that, they said, well, we pretty much do the same thing. You know, you kind of get dropped into a situation with limited resources, time's no object, you've just got to stay until the job's yeah. done. Uh, but that said, you know, I, I landed in the bistro, which uh, which focused on very classic... French uh, fine dining fare, which, which is, 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 isn't the same as the kind of fine dining fare that we see now with Nouveau Cuisine, uh, you know, that kind of El Bulli explosion and then that kind of morphing of Nouveau Cuisine into local Nouveau Cuisine through Noma. Um, it's, it's a really, it's kind of like a real peasant farm driven mm. food mm. because it's, it's the cu- French cuisine and it's, a, a, you know, like I kind of mentioned so before, it's that, you know, it's based around small holding farms mm. and, and seasonality and regionality. And so even though it was a fine dining establishment, learning to cook there really gave me a great foundation in, in simple cookery mm. uh, and in being a very prestigious restaurant, we got to, you know, access to the best produce that Australia had to offer. So that's where I kind of came to realise that produce and the quality of it is critical to, to the enjoyment of eating mm. and that when you have good produce, you don't have to do much. You know, mm. you don't have to have that that secret ingredient like, oh, there's a little twist that I put in or this yeah. weird little thing that you do to, to kind of make your food taste good. It's, it's if you've got something good, good simplicity yeah. is, uh, you so know. So the, the actual vegetable or whatever yeah. it is stands out. Exactly. Just learning to be the, the kind of steward of that flavour and yeah. letting it shine rather than, you know, trying to kind of force it into a hole that you want it to be in, you know. This, I want mm. this dish to do this. Uh, it's just really celebrating the simplicity. And, 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 and French cuisine at its heart is very good at doing that. Mm. Uh, just adding lashings of butter, of yeah, course, yeah. as well. Um, and so that's, I guess that's where I picked up the handle on cookery. But I just remember, you know, so when you're working in a restaurant like that, they're 16 hour days without breaks. You've got fully booked lunch and dinner services, and you're pretty much prepping the entire menu from scratch every day, every service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the pace is just, it's mind blowing and mm-hmm. um, a testament to human endurance that people can actually do that. Uh, but I remember just in the mid afternoon after lunch service when the adrenaline had dropped uh, from from lunch service and you were prepping for dinner and you're exhausted because you've only had four hours sleep you're in another you know 16 hour you know you're 80 hours into your 90 hour week uh, and just you know you kind of get this kind of crazy you know mind and I just remember kind of having a flashback to to Gilles farm and and eating at the table and and then looking around my surroundings and just being in this like pressure cooker stainless mm. steel box and the CBD cooking food for people that I never even saw. It just went out through a hole. Like yeah. I only saw the people as a, as a docket board, you know, which would be a very, a very large docket board. And, um, yeah, so I went, what, 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 I've, you kind know, of lost that connection. Yeah. Well, cause you get swept up in the culture of places like that as well. Yeah. It's such a difficult workplace and so prestigious that there's a real kind of club culture to it that, you know, if you don't want to be there, there's the door. Mm. But if you do want to be here, then oh, come along. You're with us. You're in the A team. You know, yeah. this is, this is only for a very small part of the population that can do this work and, you know, and thrive in this environment. Yeah. And I think I've got swept up in that through my own stubbornness, um, to, to not, you know, be beaten by but then you know I was about two years in when when that realization dawned on me and I just left straight away (laughs) well actually I gave six months notice uh, because I'd seen that in that kind of world if you gave your legal notice two weeks you were just kind of shamed out 
Mm. Like they'd just kind of, you know, there was no gold watch or anything or thanks for all your yeah. blood, sweat and tears over the last couple of years. You were just kind of treated as a quitter and, and usually mm. just shown the door halfway through your notice. Uh, so I gave six months notice and then it kind of came to the last week and everyone had forgotten about it. And I was like, oh, I'm leaving at the end of the week. Remember yeah. I gave my notice, it's all in writing upstairs in the office. Yeah. And they're like, oh, oh. Like, <laughs> uh, and then so, yeah, I'd met my now wife while I was working there. And um, after going through an experience like that, I was, very, I was desperate to just to reconnect with some sort of humanity, you know, like to, yeah, to yeah. sunshine and relationships with people where you could speak more than table numbers and times and yeah. yes and no. Where well, you had time uh, to imagine. Yeah, exactly. Oh man, there was nothing. And you, you know, when you, when you're working like that and you have a day off, you know, we, cause we used to get split days off cause it was a six day a week restaurant. One, you're exhausted. Two, you've got all your other stuff that needs to be done in your life mm. to catch up on. Mm. And then, you know, I remember by the time I'd kind of woken up, gone and got a coffee and a loaf of bread, had something to eat and done my laundry, it'd be 7 o'clock at night yeah, again. Yeah. And you're going, oh, Back to it. Oh, here we go. <laughs> you know, so this is like unrelenting baseline of stress. Like yeah. I, I, It was... Yeah, anyway, I, ha- I tip my hat to the people who um, who survive and thrive in that environment, but I'm glad that I came to the realisation that it wasn't really for me before yeah. my body fell apart. Yeah. Um, but so we then moved, you know, I, I moved back to Newcastle because uh, that was where I spent most of my 20s and we had a, you know, a great kind of community of friends up there. But as my relationship with my wife got more serious, we realised that we didn't want to just keep living in a share house and we wanted to mm. do something for ourselves. And Newcastle, I mean, was even expensive back then. It's even, you know, doubled from that now, especially on two kind of lowly hospitality wages. So we, we wanted to live somewhere near the water. We wanted to live somewhere where there was new, good food culture uh, and kind of good natural abundance. And we, we moved to Tasmania because mm. we both had mutual friends down there and had loved it. And um, I was looking to transition out of chefing. Uh, I kept doing it, obviously, to keep the income going, but my real focus was kind of getting into uh, backyard food production mm. and I was kind of kicking around looking for a way into to market gardening um, and looking for a patch of land and that's when uh, the opportunity to host River Cottage came up. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah, I reckon. <laughs> you can do all that and... And yeah. get paid by someone else. Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't sell it all and make exactly profit, low stakes, it was yeah. very very low risk um, experience for me. Yeah. Oh. So how was that? Like sort of being on the land and having learning all those different aspects of it. Yeah. Well, it was. So I mean, I, I probably should preface this by saying that you know it's doing what I did with River Cottage is a very different experience to what it would be like. Yeah, doing it totally. for, for someone buying a 20 acre block and just jumping into it yeah. um, and I think one of the reasons behind that is that in TV when you're doing something for the sake of a television program there needs to be constant novelty you yeah. kind of you know like the, the te- making television and farming uh, are, <laughs> are the polar opposite yeah. of each other you know because farming's about refining the same tasks yeah. over a very, very long period of time, yeah. whereas TV is about doing as many different tasks as you can, uh, don't have to be refined, exactly, in a, in a very short period of time. Yeah. So I, I guess for me it was great because it was kind of like uh, uh, you could dip your toe into a whole lot of different systems mm. without ever really having to make any of them really successful. <laughs> I mean, obviously, they're, like, in terms of success, keeping the animals alive and healthy yeah. uh, and happy, I mean, that was that always happened. And just learning so much. Like, there yeah. were so many people coming in yes. with great knowledge yes. that, you know, you could learn from. And by you learning, every, the whole yeah. Australia that was watching was learning yeah. as well, which I think was a great side of it. I mean, that was very... I'm very grateful to have, you know, played a role in contributing to that, to that knowledge getting out there. And I... I guess on reflection, I hope that, that through the program of River Cottage that people perhaps got to have a similar experience to what I had on that farm in Tasmania. Mm. Maybe not to the same you know, depth because I was kind of living there and, and doing it, yeah. but, but exposed to a way of life yeah. uh, that makes that really just resonates with people. Yeah. Like, no matter who you are, how yeah. old you are, what your background is, what gender you are, there's something about seeing you know community about seeing food production about seeing simple cookery in a natural environment yeah. that just immediately resonates and with sitting people. down and sharing it yeah exactly chatting i mean we're hardwired to want that kind of stuff yeah. i think you know and that's 
I, I contribute that, the, that kind of like humanity, uh, basic mm. humanity of a program like River Cottage, uh, I contribute that to its enduring success mm-hmm. uh, because it's, I mean, it's still airing. We, we first made it in 2013. We last made it in 2015 to go air in 2016. And here we are in 2019 and people are still discovering it and still mm. enjoying it. I, I yeah, you know, awesome. I like to say it's a cult program. Just, uh, <laughs> just because I figure if I it say it enough in public, <laughs> it'll, you know, it'll become, you know, it'll become truth if I keep repeating yeah. it enough. Um, but the fact that, you know, that young children watch it, that, uh, old people watch it, that, mm. that people in the city watch it, people in the country watch it. And, you know, it's, it's just amazing to have been able to contribute in some way to, to that and to people's enjoyment and exposure to that way of yeah. life. Yeah. Because I think people want it. Mm. You know, I think we really, we, we desire that. Yeah, people want to be connected to Absolutely. To have that life where they're actually doing, it's almost like that's the real life. It is, yeah. It's growing food and. That's right. You know, having animals and doing all that, whereas sitting at a computer it's not it's kind of not real yeah it's just this and then you go oh Oh, i could be doing that oh wouldn't that be nice (laughs) oh chasing some pigs uh, around a muddy pen or some goats through a blackberry tangle gully and yeah it obviously paints a picture of all the good wonderful side of of course you know it is Hard work. Well, I mean, it was that was a lifestyle program, you know. Yeah. So it's um, and I in again in kind of hindsight, I often kind of think that River Cottage <clears throat> and programs like that do like do a wonderful service to the aspirational viewer, yeah, but yeah. do a disservice to the people who actually want to go and do it, yeah, and use that as the kind of the foundation yeah. of that desire okay, to go. So oh, it'll be just like River Cottage, and, yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, because I mean, it's a lifestyle program. You know, they rub yeah. the Vaseline on the lens, and it's yeah. you know, it's there's a little bit of jeopardy or drama. But compared to the reality, the the real dramas of running a twenty acre property like that, they're, mm. you know, they're nothing. And when you're relying on that, for yeah, income, yeah, that's right. And I mean, that was a luxury that you know certainly that I enjoyed there. That um, you know, I, I guess I kind of compare what I did at River Cottage to what someone who would have a hobby farm and still be working a full time job. Yeah. like I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't the full time farmer, but I was there seven days a week for the four years duration of the program. Yeah, but it was you know just kind of keeping everything alive and happy. Like yeah. I wasn't trying to feed my, you know, I did feed my family, but not trying to put you know money or income yeah. into the situation. So yeah. I mean, we it always it broke even. Like that was always something that I was made certain of that the kind of feed cost uh, and then the value of the you know the eggs or the meats or the the the, the vegetables kind of mm. warranted the labor and the effort mm. um so but yeah but it never made a profit yeah but i mean i guess that's kind of what a lot of people would like to do whether they're on acreage or in a backyard yeah just be and most people are working other jobs and absolutely but to be doing that and growing food that's going to supplement everything else that yeah. doing. Yeah, well, and not only the, the kind of lifestyle component of it's a disservice, but I think that that kind of concept of self-sufficiency is yeah. a little bit of a Which, disservice as yeah. well. You know, it's, and whenever you do a program like River Code, just, you know, I, I never mentioned it on the program because I don't agree with the term no, uh, or the concept, uh, but people always would bring it up. You know, it's like, mm. oh, you so see, you're living this self-sufficient lifestyle. And I'm like, well, not really. I'm like hugely dependent yeah, yeah, on exactly. the on the greater world, you yeah. know. And so uh, I'm so far removed from self-sufficiency, it's not funny. Uh, but, but I think that people, even in the backyard context, feel like that's the goal. Like yeah. if, if you're not growing all your own vegetables, then why bother growing any? You know, yeah. like if I'm just growing like five tomatoes, then I might as well just get them from the supermarket, you know, it's, um, but it's, 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 that's wrong. You know, like being, having any sort of resilience or sovereignty or connection to your own food growing is infinitely better than zero. Yeah. (laughs) And once you start, you might start with your herbs or start with a tomato plant and then you go, oh, well, what about some spinach? It's actually pretty tasty. What about some raspberries? What about, you know, and, or you think, well, this tastes like this, where else can I get? food like this yes you know, and then you think about who you where you're buying it and how it's growing and yeah and it, it, as we kind of touched on earlier that then you're starting to open up to the world of what food can taste like yeah you know, and how i mean obviously it's a very a kind of well-worn idea that homegrown tastes better um and then there's a reason for that. It doesn't always taste better because sometimes there is, uh, there's massive failures where you get these like woody little crap bitter tomatoes uh, yeah. or, you know, or just total failures. But when you get it right, uh, it's, 
is so much, so much better. I mean, just look mm. at chickens. Mm. You know, all you have to do is keep a couple of chooks in your backyard. Anyone who's kept backyard chickens will have no problem waxing lyrical about how much better their eggs are yeah. than even the lowest stocking density pastured free range eggs. You yeah. know, so you, because there's, there's a, I guess there's like And a, they're fresh. Yeah, they're exactly. Gone, yeah, gone, and the process, there's a connection. You know yeah. those chickens. You feed them. You look yeah. after them. You're while the hours away watching them scratching yeah. around in the backyard. But I think that for, for nutrition, there's a, there's a direct relationship between human contact, uh, you know, per square metre, mm. uh, and, and nutrition. Mm. Uh, I just remember seeing a great quote. Uh, I can't remember whether it was from Rodale or from Wendell Berry. Um, about the best type of fertilizer is a farmer's footprints. Mm. Uh, you know, and we're actually, at that, yeah, you know, it being, being down, exactly being right there. And, you know, there's, we're at the opposite end of that now where, mm. you know, I've, through my line of work, I've, you know, with catalysts, I've been out to some incredible, you know, very futuristic broadacre monocultural mm. cropping operations where the driver doesn't even have to be in the cab of the million-dollar yeah. combine harvester yeah. because it's, it's down to... It's GPS-driven to 0.2 of a centimetre. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's ins- yeah. insane. Total uh, but there's no footprints yeah. on that paddock, you know? Yeah. So there's, uh, it's all done by, by spreadsheet yeah. uh, and testing and, you know, it's, and drones increasingly. So, yeah. uh, But in the backyard is the ultimate kind of area to put down those maximum footprints, you know? Mm. It's, uh, because in my experience... Even on a 20-acre property, there was pockets of that property that I'd visit once a year. Yeah. And I'd walk around it every day. You know, yeah. every day I'd walk around, try to do the whole property. Uh, but still, there were little pockets of gullies or little, you know, little bits that I just would just never get to. Mm. Uh, whereas in a backyard, you know, you, you've got, you know, you've kind of got your fenced block in town. And yeah. so you've you got this... You've on every little corner of Exactly, it. Yeah, yeah. You've got this focused area where you can dedicate your efforts. Um, mm. And so that's why I really... I'm excited, you know, because about living in, in a in a more urban context now. Um, so yeah, can you? So you were in Tilba, yes, with River Cottage, and then you moved to Melbourne. So what was the impetus for that move? Well, so we, my wife and I, we, we had one kid, and we were expecting our second. And um, I was kind of travelling away for work a lot on, mm. the, on the kind of tail end of River Cottage, and um, we realised that. Well, we, we, we didn't realise, sorry, we had the question of, of are we here on the south coast because a job brought us here uh, that is now finished, that job, or are we here because this is genuinely where we want to spend our life? Uh, and so we had a little bit of soul searching uh, and I guess we both went wanted to reconnect with our formative adult communities. That was Newcastle for me and Melbourne for my wife, Alicia. So we moved back to Newcastle because my family are up in the area and it just it didn't happen for us up there, mm. you know. We I used to live in that kind of share house in Newcastle East, which is like a wonderful little pocket, you know, surrounded by a beach and all of our friends had since, you know, moved into their own homes and were scattered all over the city and we were living in suburban Newcastle and I don't know, there's just something about living in suburbia of regional cities that, you know, it's mm. just kind of like a grey area for me. Like yeah. I either want to be in a city yeah. or, or in a rural area, you know, yeah. like regional city suburbia. I just, oh, it's, it's a tough one <laughs> for me. It, it wasn't for me. You know, like for example, like the nearest place we could go to to get a coffee of the morning was at the near Westfield. You know, and I'm yeah. like, <laughs> when we realised that, I was like, oh, no, we've got to go. So the second kid was born and we went down to Melbourne, as I said, because my wife was a Melbourne girl. And we did the, um, the kind of baby tour and showed it around. And I'd had the, the idea for the book kind of fermenting for a while and either, as a pitch anyway, initially as a TV program. But when I was um, down there, my... Uh, my agent suggested, it's like, well, while you're down here in Melbourne, you know, so you're here for a week, why don't you, like, type up an A4 pitch uh, around a book concept you'd like to do and mm. we'll take it to some publishers. Um, and uh, I knew... So this concept was already in my mind, so it didn't take long. I typed it up in about an hour. And the next day I went to a publisher and they, they, they kind of jumped straight on it, the first publisher that right. I went to. So, so, and we were having such a great time in Melbourne, so much better time than we were having in Newcastle. Uh, and so I kind of went back from that meeting and told my wife and said, look, you know, I've got, they've agreed to do this book deal, uh, and they want it about urban food and growing in the city. Like, how would you feel? I know we just moved six months ago. How'd you feel about coming down to Melbourne? And she was like, she was straight on top. She yeah. loved the idea. Yeah. 
So uh, we did another massive move uh, within a mm. six-month period, this time with two kids instead of mm. one kid and a heavily <laughs> pregnant wife. Oh, I'm never moving again. <laughs> I've done so much of it in the last seven years. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we wanted to write it in, a, in an environment which was kind of relevant to, to the future audience of the book. I wanted yeah. to write it in a city, basically, yeah. uh, and in an area that kind of was... You know, on the verge of urban and suburban. Yeah. So for, for the listeners out there, so Thornbury's about six, seven k's from the CBD, but it's that yeah. first kind of suburb where there's big freestanding houses and decent-sized yards. Uh, mm. You know, it's a, it's a kind of old uh, migrant community suburb, lots of Greeks and Italians, so mm. lots of food-growing culture there yeah. already and a really beautiful intersection of, of demographics and age groups and cultures yeah. where you had people like myself uh, who don't, don't really come from what I'd call a food culture. Mm. Uh, you know, we don't we don't have that unbroken line of food heritage and food production culture. Mm. But that said, you know, there's a lot of people in the same boat as me who yeah. are really thirsting to create it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and looking for looking for that knowledge from the elders within that community. Mm. And as far there's as so many, oh that, man, it's the best. And especially amazing. as like a, the Italian and Greek communities, yeah. like the the fact that they kind of represent, you know unbroken urban agricultural experts yeah. since kind of Aristotle and Plato and you know yeah. that they've been growing food close to cities and villages yeah. uh, was just such a wonderful yeah, community to be a part of and, mm. and you know I was very conscious about kind of growing food in the front of the house and wanting yeah. to have food out the front of the house and I just yeah, had so, so describe many... your front. I saw a photo. Yeah. Front well, so the, for the front yard was the front yard was a tough one uh, because it was the house was built on a on a kind of a slight slope. So they built the original house, then built a retaining wall and backfilled it with all the building junk mm. and sand. Mm. So it was. Uh, I tried the first summer I was there. I tried a crop uh, directly in the soil, like dug some deep holes and filled it with compost and heavy mulch around it. But it was just so poor and sandy. Uh, and anyone who's you know, Melbourne gets a rap, bad rap as being a cold city, but it's actually a really, really hot yeah. and dry <laughs> city in summer too. as well. Yeah. And that summer we just had these runs of 45-degree days and everything yeah. died because there was no resilience in the soil. Yeah. So the next season I uh, instead went for the, the, the kind of no-dig, Estadine, lasagna garden yeah. type one uh, where I just built a, a kind of garden perimeter out of some hay bales and just filled it with all kind of lovely layers of vermicast and compost and soil and straw and cardboard and planted into that. And um, it was great. That actually, you know, grew some pumpkins in there, and they went gangbusters. But just grow, just just growing out the front is the. If, yeah. if, if anyone's listening and they've got a front garden and you're not growing food in it, I just can't recommend it enough because I can guarantee you'll have some of the best conversations yeah. with members of your neighbourhood or residents of your neighbourhood than you've ever had before. Because yeah. it's just something about seeing someone growing food that yeah. makes it safe and approachable mm. you don't see someone growing food and you go like oh geez i don't know if that person would be up for a, a chat or you know they look a bit dodgy you know yeah. it's uh you see someone watering fruit and vegetables then i guess they automatically have a, a kind of nurturing disposition or appear to have a nurturing mm. disposition so and i'd have all these wonderful old like greek yayas oh, coming past amazing. and they'd be, they'd just, they'd be like oh oh so good to your oh, to see a someone growing boy. food yeah exactly oh look at the garden oh it's so Oh, oh, and so you know that was hugely um, inspiring. You yeah. know, like that's what you just to see. They give that, you their little tips. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Oh, these beans need more water. More water. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And then you know you'd be walking down the street and you'd see their garden and they'd yeah. be out there and they'd be like and obviously they're these kind of beautiful mature you know forty year old gardens yeah. that are just these you know urban paradises that yeah. are thronging with life. So it was a great community to land in. Yeah. and really enjoyable to write the book but and that gave my wife a chance to reconnect with all her friends and family uh, but it wasn't too long down there where we just realized that actually the south coast is where we genuinely mm. wanted to be you know mm. it's because anyone who li is living in the city know there's like a, a kind of whole raft of financial pressures that come with living mm. in the city and you know the rent that we were paying for our house in Thornbury was double what our mortgage is here in yeah. Bermagui, you know, yeah. and we kind of went, what are we doing, you know, so we've yeah. got, we live in a beautiful village, you know, everything's walking distance here in town yeah. uh, for us, the beach is right there, you know, the and, the, all around. and this, the, the, the kind of trimmings of the city are always there, 
you know, yeah. like you can go and visit them yeah. and, you know, and you tend to actually do more in a three-day yeah, visit Ooh, than you do. Ooh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Nice restaurant. I think the biggest thing that I'll miss about <laughs> Melbourne is the, the bike paths. Yeah. Um, because I, I, when we got there, I still had this, like, 86 Hilux ute. You know, like a real country car, you know, that I just couldn't drive around. It was just too much of a, a rig uh, to get around country anywhere in the city. In the yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's uh, had these tiny, so you couldn't see any like anything out the mirrors. So you couldn't change lanes. You couldn't reverse park. So I sold that and bought a um a, like a long tail cargo bike. Uh, oh, yeah, cool. And that it was that was the best because everything for us there was in like a 15 minute ride away and it was a 15 minute drive as well because of the traffic yeah, and the park and... exactly and you know for anyone who's familiar with the melbourne bike paths you know all those kind of Especially amazing there, oh exactly so i live right near the mary creek and yeah. that was just like this kind of bushy artery to go anywhere you wanted yeah. in the city you could yeah. link up you could go straight into the city or you can go into the yarra trail or the capital city trail it was um so yeah. many great options and um you know and for my kids because i've got a, a now four and two year old they just loved it if you know they you get to that stage yeah. of the afternoon where kids are going feral you know and i didn't want to sit in front of Lovely. the telly or so i just chuck them on the bike and go for a ride for an hour and that would get them out of my wife's hair and and you know i'd get some exercise and fresh air and they're just happy as larry just yeah. quiet sitting on the back soaking yeah. it up but now we're in Birmingham, like I kind of it's a novelty now to get that yeah. bike out. <laughs> it's a... Yeah, and I think like you know, as much as the south coast here is amazing and beautiful, I think there are so many things in the city that are on offer that we don't have. Oh, like oh, that. Absolutely. And you know, there's that the the sense of community and the amount of people. Yes. So you can actually sort of there are all these events going on all yep. the time and they're yep. all full of people. And, yep, lots you know, of different perspectives. And... around here sometimes, you know, there's not much on or someone puts on an event and there's not that many people yes. that come to Yes, it's the same five people yeah. that you see at all those events. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, as much as sort of it's great to move and get out of the city. Yes. And I think what you were trying to show in the book too is that you can actually oh. do all of that yeah. stuff on that you were talking about on River Cottage, except yeah. maybe... Pigs. Pigs and cows. But <laughs> no, I'm sure there's plenty of those old Italian do. families I mean, that have kept pigs in. We did a podcast and an article about, uh, in, I think they're in Thornbury too, mm. and they, or maybe Heidelberg mm. West, with the goats. Yes. And, yeah, so they've got milking goats. Mm-hmm. They walk them up and down the street. They've got a little, and the whole community, you know, different families come and milk them and they share the milk. So It's possible. Even in the city, you yeah. can do that. And sometimes there's that problem of distance once you get further out. Yes. Like, yeah, Bermagui and Pambula, it's not that far, but it, it's an hour and a quarter yeah, to drive. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes you've got those connections, but it's a long yeah. way and it's hard to bring all those little villages that have yeah. to sort of come together. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. There's definitely um, some real benefit to having that density mm. of urban living mm. and, and all those people there. Um, I mean, one of the great examples that I that we certainly enjoyed the benefit of while we we're in Melbourne was the the Ceres Fair Food yeah, system. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, so we Such any day place. of the week we could have incredible organic produce yeah. delivered to our front door. Yeah. You know, like and and at a at a price that was so reasonable and yeah. affordable. And I mean, I know I don't know if it's still like that, but at the market, the Ceres market, it would say how far it had travelled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, sometimes yeah. it was a hundred metres from yes. the veggie garden. Yep. Whereas sometimes you live regionally and it's come from Melbourne. Yes. And then before Melbourne it came from somewhere else. So yeah. I think, yeah, there's that benefit as well. Yeah, well, I th- I th- you know, I think people assume that country people eat better food because it's closer to where the agriculture happens. But I think with the, the structure of our modern food system that you actually eat a lot better in the city. Yeah. Um, I dream yeah. of the big market. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Being able to oh, go the there. deli hall. Yeah. <laughs> and just all that choice and so much. Yes. You could go any day of the week. Yeah. And, and there's freshness because of yeah. that volume of, of trade. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, there's a high turnover, so you pretty much always get fresh stuff. Yeah. Yeah, no, we, um, we really did enjoy it. But, but that said, I think we... There's enough here in Bermagui for us. Yeah, that, that, you Bermagui's know, great. Yeah, but because it's, it's a, it's it's really the real sweet spot for us in that it's still a small village. It's not huge. It's, I think it's got about two thousand full time residents, 
But, you know, but there's enough here that, that we can really go like a fortnight at least without having to get in the car. Yeah. You know, just great. in terms of like day to day stuff. It's only if there's like a bigger governmental service kind of thing that we've got to engage with or or some specialty item that we need to track down that we that we have to get in the car and drive somewhere. Mm. Uh, and that was a real that was a real driver in our decision making process to be here. Mm. To to be uh, have that, that kind of human foot powered lifestyle mm. or, or bike at most like where, you know where we are here like the bike you know is, is almost being lazy you know yeah, to, yeah. to get on a bike and ride somewhere yeah. it's so close to walk that like you know i'll just walk it's fine yeah. and that's that's the kind of conundrum that i want you know yeah, to, yeah. to go well to bike or to walk oh you know i might as well just walk yeah um because i that 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 kind of human powered speed of of transport within a community i think that's a really under undervalued component of of that kind of holistic picture of food and community mm. uh, is that growing it locally and in your backyard uh, or wherever you can in your community garden is one essential component cooking it at home simply in a way that preserves nutrition and, and nourishes your family is important but then you also need that exposure and interaction with your community mm. for, for your own health. It's not yeah. it's not just about being social, you know, like just having a chat. I mean, that's that's one of the mechanisms of it. But um, I, I, I like to refer to, I guess, that kind of concept of the blue zone diet, where mm. they they've studied, you know, the, the the nutritional component of these small communities that are dotted around the world that contribute to longevity. Uh, but I think it's only been a more recent realization uh, and, a, and a kind of broader assessment of the lifestyles of those communities that they are, they live in small villages, mm. they get around on foot, they grow food by hand, there's a really dynamic, entrenched community life that they interact with on a daily basis mm. from the day they were born yeah. to, you know, to, the, to when they're living in their kind of blue zone 90s. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that is a critical component of that health, that, you mm. know, to, the, to go and live in that self-sufficient lifestyle uh, out of a remote rural property, you might be growing incredible nutrient-dense food, but mm. you're lacking the nourishment from that, com that mm. daily community yeah. exposure. So I can imagine mm. that, that, you know, you're not kind of getting the same benefits in your whole life than, than without mm. having the village. Mm. And I love in the book that you're talking about building community through food. Yeah. And like having a food community. Can you explain? Well, yeah. I, I think that uh, food is, is a, such a wonderful way to bring people together because we all eat, mm. you know. It's, uh, and I mean, I, I see it so often uh, and I'm you know I like I'm not like I'm not being judgmental uh, I don't think I'm just kind of seeing it as a as a state of affairs that when we come together communally now like there's it's like soft drinks and it's like especially when you have kids parties because I've got kids now so whenever yeah. I see kids parties it's like big bags of lollies and soft drinks and plastic containers and, mm. and you know, and that's, that's the, the kind of the food that we celebrate for, but you feel crap after eating yeah. that stuff, you know, yeah. like I feel crap, the kids feel crap and we've kind of lost that. And because the kids feel crap, you feel yeah, crap. Yeah, exactly. Cause, Cause they make you pay <laughs> for making them feel crap, you know, and they go pear shaped and have tantrums and there's meltdowns and it's a disaster. Um, and so I, I just, I feel like that we've lost that ability to, to kind of cater for a crowd, mm. you know, and that's my, one of the greatest, I guess, blessings that I have from my career as a chef uh, was that kind of feeding a large group of people is so not stressful. Mm. You know, if there's yeah. 10 people coming over for barbecue, it's fine. It's if 20 10. people, it's, it's only 10, exactly, <laughs> you know. So to, to have the, the framework uh, and the, the skills and the knowledge to be able to cater to a large group of people uh, and, and make sure they're all enjoying high-quality, nutrient-dense, actually tasty food is a real boon. And, and I think, you know, when I talk to people about their, their, their food experiences and you think about the, the best meals that you've ever had, very rarely is it the, the kind of, oh, there was this one time I went to this fine dining restaurant and spent $500 a head and, you know, it's never that. It's always they're like, oh, you know, we just had 20 friends and we just mm. cooked some, you know, some real simple meat and veggies from people's gardens and mm. we drank wine and the sun shone. It was the best meal of my life, you mm. know. And, and that's... There's so much more to it. Exactly. It, exactly. It's yeah. like that's the company is just as nourishing as the, as the kind of food. So I really wanted to again to kind of look at food uh as that holistic picture of production uh or, or like growing it sorry preparation and then sharing and enjoying mm. as a part of a community because it's it's actually where the kind of culture 
happens, the mm. culture component of it. You know, because so much of it you do as an individual, like growing, you know, it can be done communally, but most of us kind of grow in a kind of family unit or a very small community. Cooking is usually one or two people, you know, chopping stuff up in the kitchen. But when it comes to the sharing of it, mm. that's where everyone's sitting around at the same table and everyone's kind of connecting to, to each other and sharing and enjoying the food and the spoils of the, the labour. Mm. And I, that, it's, 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 it's an essential part. I think, you know, like mm. I, I really don't like how food has, has been viewed in a reductionist manner now that we kind of isolate it into its individual components. There's like, there's backyard food growing, there's cooking, and then there's kind of communities. And, mm. and, but, but really, they're all three spokes of the same yeah. wheel. Mm. And to take one of those out of, you know, the picture, the whole suffers. Mm. So, and, and I guess well, I, if you can't cook... Yeah, well, that's right. I agree. I mean, you can't yeah, do well, anything. Yeah, you're getting the, the, the prepackaged coleslaw, you know. Yeah. If you can't cook, you go to the deli at the supermarket and get the, you know, the two-litre tub of coleslaw. Yeah. And, and then what's the point of growing the cabbage? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but, but, yeah, and no, you're spot on. Like, if you can't cook, why grow? Like, mm. you're never going to grow it if you don't like to cook. Mm. Uh, and that's why I guess I'm glad that I, I, I've kind of come at this primarily from a, a food cooking focus, mm. but have been able to bring those other components mm. in because cooking your own food I think is the is the most essential starting point for mm. that yeah and then you'll probably because I think then you know if you start with cooking and we, we touched on this earlier about uh you know getting the the low-grade produce from the supermarkets and kind of cooking with that and going okay and then but then maybe then you start shopping at like a farmer's market maybe and you get some really tasty produce mm. or growing excuse me a little bit of your own and then you start cooking with that and you go, whoa, this is so much better. Yeah. Oh, I want to grow some more of this. Uh, and then you grow more and then you've got an abundance Then you need to share it with your community. Yeah. So I think it's if people are wanting to engage with, with that connected lifestyle, uh, uh, that, that way of living that is connected to, to place and to, to community and culture, uh, I think food and learning how to prepare it from scratch with simple ingredients in a very mm. economic, you know, not... Not making master chef stuff, okay, yeah. you know. Not, not trying to like emulate chefs in fine yeah. dining kitchens, but actually learning how to cook for a household, yeah. for a family, from a community, because it's a totally yeah. different style of cooking. Yeah, and it's one that's largely ignored uh, in our modern. Well, the extravagant yeah. kind of like it's unnecessary. Well, and it, also it means you generally have a recipe. Yeah. And then you have to go out and get all the things. Exactly. As opposed to going into your garden and yes. going, what have I got? Yeah. How will this all go together? Yep. And the more you cook, I guess, the more you can intuitively yes. put those ingredients together and go, oh, those things would be good. Yeah. You know, well, you don't I, actually need... I hate writing a recipe book. <laughs> I like, I, you know, I, I understand... Have that, a little bit of yeah, this. Yeah, a little, a little bit, bit of that. that. But, I, you know, because recipes are not how I cook. Yeah. Uh, but I can't put the way I cook on, on page. Because it's a learnt Exactly. Thing. Exactly. And, uh, and I, I love... I love to encourage people openly. If you if you have any of my books uh, and you hear this, please like go off script, like yeah, freestyle. Yeah. Use that as a foundation and yeah. inspiration. And there's whenever I, I I guess am talking to people about learning to cook or encouraging them to expand their their confidence as a cook, it's to it's just to feel free to alter recipes as you see yeah. fit. Except yeah. for cakes and biscuits and bread. Yeah. Like, there's kind of a real kind of molecular science yeah. behind the way they work. Butter and eggs. Exactly. And like there's tweak but don't just rewrite the script on that but you know because i've seen it happen so many times with friends and family that they they, they see a recipe they want to cook and they get kind of two-thirds of the way through it and realize that they're missing one ingredient yeah, from it and the I wheels are off like the wheel oh no we can't make a recipe and what's a disaster so i'm gonna to have to get in the car and drive to the supermarket and get the same yeah. like, leave the stage out yeah it's fine just leave it out. what else have you got exactly get some dried oregano out of the pantry or yeah. anything you know it's uh and but that's again something that comes with experience that confidence to, yeah. to realise. And I think as well that the, the more your, your skill and confidence as a cook deepens, the more you realise that the less you have to do. Yeah. That it's more about finding Just a good ingredient. Keeping it really simple. Exactly. Like mm. the, when you have a good ingredient and that's the foundation of your dish, then there's not much you have to do. Mm. Bit of salt, bit of pepper, maybe some yeah. butter, some love, and then, you know, yeah. some herbs. And no matter what the ingredient, you it can pretty much make something taste. Exactly. A little bit of acid, a little bit of fat, salt. You're yeah, away. <laughs> yeah. And you also talk about like community day, like a pickling party and, um, um, you know, brewing beer together. And yeah. So those things are, um, 
an important part of creating well, uh, a community. Well, they, they add an extra layer of um, complexity to food, mm. uh, I think, because if you say you make those pickles or you brew that beer, it's it all of a sudden becomes more than it's com- some parts. Mm. You know, it's uh, so when you know in two months' time you you crack the top of that beer, you're not just you know opening a fermentation of of, of malt and water and yeast. Uh, and mm. hops, you're opening memories. You yeah. know, you're reconnecting with the person on that day. You're reconnecting with the day, the lead up, the mm. organisation, the conversations you had, that experience with that person in general. Your whole relationship, not just that day. Yeah. And so it's it adds that all that extra component and connection to to your community, to the actual thing that you're eating. And that's that, like that's the stuff that fills your cup. Mm. You know, that's your, your spiritual, mental, totally. emotional cup. That's the the stuff that makes you kind of feel alive and whole and connected. And, and it, yeah, it's really enjoyable. Like if you to sort of sit down and do like making posada or pickles, Ooh. and you're doing it on your own, it can feel like quite a big. It's task. grand. Yeah. <laughs> it's like okay, another bottle. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Once you have a whole group of people, it, the work just happens. Yep. And you don't even concentrate on the work. Yeah. That's what I love. And that's, again, one of the reasons why I wanted to c- include that kind of stuff because they're all the kind of tasks where you kind of go, oh, as you said, you do it yourself. You're like, oh, man. Like, like especially at, like at the end of the bean harvest, yeah. if you grow dried beans, yeah. the idea of like potting, you know, a 20-litre bucket of your dried beans by yourself is just like pulling fingernails. Yeah. But if you get two or three people there, glass of wine, some nice yeah. music and yeah. some conversation, you know, all of a sudden the bucket's done and you've got yeah, all your you're beans. You're like, oh, oh we're well, some more. Yeah, that was about half. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, again, that, that so much of food used to happen communally. You know, we're a social creature. We come from a, a tribal and village and extended family structure throughout most of humanity. Mm-hmm. And so all food wouldn't have been done in that in that nuclear, small family, individual style preparation where it was mm. just, you know, one person over at their own little Getting fire cooking, out. you know. Yeah. It was it was one fire, it was one tribe, one community, one village, and uh and they would prepare communally and eat together. And mm. so again it's we're so accustomed to that in our kind of ancestry that there's a whole raft of, of, of emotional and chemical and hormonal benefits that, mm. I, you know, I'm just making this up. <laughs> I, like, I cannot link that to any scientific <laughs> studies uh, at I'm all. I'm with you on that. Yeah, but I, but I think okay, there's yeah. an intuition to it, you know, yeah. that, that obviously that there, there might not be. Uh, there probably is scientific studies on that, but, but I've seen it anecdotally and experienced it myself so many times that I just... I just wholeheartedly believe that 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 connecting to how your food is grown uh, and prepared and sharing it with your community is is the magic bullet for mm. for human happiness mm. just, and and our place in the world as well. You know, it's yeah. this. I just kind of put it up there as the the magic solve all to to the world's and our community's woes. Yeah. Great. <laughs> well, let's get started. <laughs> so, what? Just to finish off, what would you say to people who? either growing a little bit or maybe don't grow at all like where can they start with so start I, I think start by cooking is yeah. number one uh, it, just start by you know and when it comes to cooking I think the number one thing that I like to encourage people to get a grasp on if they don't already have it is mastering the slow cooker yeah uh, because if you can take those really economic cuts of you know mm. grass-fed beef or lamb because they're the ones that you know in southeastern australia we can pretty much guarantee have been grass-fed anyway without yeah. having to kind of pay a premium yeah. uh, for that uh if you can master that uh then you've found a really great way of simply preparing nutrient-dense accessible food for your family mm. uh and then in even addition if you're to busy. That, even if you're busy exactly mm. because it's i mean that it's so easy i mean i totally understand and respect the pressures of people's lives but to fill a slow cooker of a morning takes about 15 minutes yeah you know it really does uh and you can leave it ticking away. And it's such a beautiful, warming, nurturing thing to come home to, especially mm. in winter. You open the door, your slow cooker's been ticking yeah. away all day, that and smell. you just hit the smell. It's fill. Or yeah. I, I, I use mine to make buckets of stock. Yeah. And just to wake up on a winter's morning, you know, after after you've been asleep all night, it's cold and the air's fresh, but you can kind of get that. You can smell the humidity and the the kind of richness of yeah. the stock in the house. It's just it's a really warming thing. Um, so start by learning how to slow cook stuff uh, and and then start 
uh, in the garden uh, is throw the concept of the backyard blitz out the window. I think, mm-hmm. like, if you think yeah. you've, you've got a big backyard and you want to blitz it and turn it into a market garden, you know, in two weekends, please don't. <laughs> uh, unless you really have experience in it. Uh, yeah. if, if, you, if you are wanting to get into it, start with some, like, small, hardy, perennial herbs. Things like oregano, thyme, rosemary, uh, things that, that go that are pretty bomb proof can grow in pots. You can keep it at your backyard. They're Mediterranean. So they don't need heaps and heaps of water. Mm. Um, and if, especially then if you're pairing that with your slow cooking, they're the kind of herbs that you can add mm. to, to slow cooking and they add a really great depth of flavor. And then beyond that, uh, once you've got your kind of herb garden happening, start with the greens because greens are one of those things that deteriorate most rapidly from time of harvest mm. to, to consumer and anyone that's bought herbs or, or leaves from the supermarket and had them turn into green sludge in two days will know that mm. we'll see the results of that but if you if you're growing like loose head lettuces cut and come again greens you take mm. only what you need and you're actually eating living food like mm. it's, it's still that's that's not woo woo that's actual it, like yeah. it's enzymatically active like there's yeah. so much life to it but the only animal that eats dead food i mean even scavengers of meat are eating living food because of the amount of microbial activity in it <laughs> but our our vegetable consumption our meat consumption is so far removed from from being alive that mm. that, that we're missing out on all the benefit from that enzymatic richness so Cut and come again greens, hardy perennial herbs. If that's where you want to start, start keep it all in pots mm. if you like. Keep it close to your back door. Keep it somewhere where you're going to walk past it mm. every single day. So, And keep the watering can next to it as well. Just make it as easy as possible. Yeah. And then look out because the bug's going to bite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and next thing you know, you will have your whole backyard yeah. covered in vegetables and chooks and you'll be raising guinea pigs for meat and, and you'll you know, be like compost toiling. Yeah, exactly. You'll be Mrs. Angel in yeah. no time. <laughs> well, thanks for having a chat and sharing oh. all of your knowledge and enthusiasm for all of this. Oh, thanks, Robin. It's, it's, been, uh, it's been absolutely wonderful. And yeah, Pleasure. the book is great. It's the Edible Garden Cookbook and Growing Guide. So it's got how to grow food. How to cook it, how to look after the soil, how to connect to community, all in one book. So, get it. (laughs) (laughs) What she said. (laughs) Okay, thanks. Thanks, Robin. You have been listening to Pit Podcast number 26 with Paul West, author of the Edible Garden Cookbook and Growing Guide. Want to learn more about growing your own edible garden? Visit www.pitmagazine.com.au for free recipes, garden guides, tips and know-how or to subscribe to our magazine.